Hi everyone, thanks for listening to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, we looked at the beginning of the Age of Decay in medieval Denmark. Two dynasties, both descendants of King Valdemar the Victorious, fought each other for control over the kingdom. Abel, Duke of Schleswig, had his brother King Eric Plaupeni murdered, but he himself fell in battle soon after his accession to the throne. Then followed a struggle between the sons of Eric and Abel that drained the resources of the country and the patience of its inhabitants. The only ones who benefited from the fighting were the aristocracy. They could move their positions forward, expanding their rights and privileges at the expense of the crown since the embattled kings of the 13th century became increasingly dependent on the nobility to cling to the throne. We ended the last episode with yet another regicide, and the victim this time was also called Eric. It was Eric Clipping who was stabbed and hacked to death by a conspiracy of noblemen in 1286. Today, we'll look at whether the murder of yet another king finally brought stability and peace to Denmark. Spoiler alert, it didn't. Episode 47, The End of Denmark. When Eric Clipping was murdered in that barn in Findrup in November 1286, his and Agnes of Brandenburg's son was only 12 years old. This kid, by the way, was of course also called Eric. I mean, come on, what were you expecting? So just like in the case of his father, the new king, Eric, needed a regent to run the show while he was concentrating on growing up. And just like in the case of his father, the task was given to the German-born dowager queen. Agnes ruled Denmark until 1294, when she handed over the reins of power to the then 20-year-old Eric, son of Eric. To say that the political situation in Denmark was turbulent in the weeks and months following the murder of Eric Clipping would be something of an understatement. As soon as Agnes, as regent, could, she focused her efforts on finding and punishing her husband's murderers. During Pentecost in 1287, so roughly six months after Eric's death, the court was gathered at Newburgh Castle, and there 27 prominent men were tasked with judging the case against the noblemen who were accused of having conspired against and murdered the former king. There were nine defendants, chief among them Marshal Stieg Andersen Wiede and Jacob Nielsen, the Count of Halland. I'm not sure the accused were expecting to get a thorough and fair trial, and if they were, the proceedings surely disappointed them. The trial was over in one day, and the 27-man jury found the accused guilty. Their property was confiscated by the crown, and they were declared outlaws. If they were to remain in Denmark, they were to be killed on sight by anyone. And as if that wasn't bad enough, the Pope weighed in and excommunicated the outlaws. But... Unlike the Pope, not everyone agreed that the one-day trial had been 100% kosher. Critics pointed out that it hadn't been proven that any of the convicted men had actually been near the barn where the king was repeatedly stabbed to death and then some. Also, the accused had been denied the legal right to appear in front of the judges and swear their innocence, or have someone else swear to their innocence on their behalf. In addition, many of the convicted noblemen lacked any apparent motive. They had all been members of Eric Clipping's inner circle. At the same time, there were some other prime suspects, such as the Duke of Schleswig and Archbishop Jacob, who had openly fought against Eric for years. 
Still, they were not among the men accused of involvement in the murder. 20th century historians have, in fact, launched a theory that it was Eric's arch-nemesis, the Duke of Schleswig, who was behind the murder. The Duke had not only fought against the king, but also against a rival aristocratic party led by the Marshal Stieg Andersen Wiede. By having the king assassinated and pinning the blame on the Marshal, the Duke of Schleswig killed two birds with one stone, removing both the hated king and his main rival within the nobility. Whether they were guilty or the victims of a miscarriage of justice, the convicted men left Denmark as soon as they could and, as I'm sure you've all figured out by now, these were the Danish noble outlaws who fled to Norway and who eventually gave the name to the War of the Outlaws when Norwegian forces invaded Denmark that we talked about last time. That was bad news for the young king and his regent slash mother, but the bad news kept piling up. The old archbishop, Jacob, had kicked the bucket, and you'd think that this would be a positive development for the royal family, but unfortunately, it was the case of out of the frying pan and into the fire. The new archbishop, Jens, happened to be related to some of the outlaws, which really shouldn't come as a great shock to anyone since most people in the upper crust of the Danish nobility were related to each other. So Archbishop Jens wasn't exactly a supporter of King Eric. In fact, he's supposed to have said, I don't care if Duke Valdemar, a Jew, a Turk, a pagan or the devil himself is King of Denmark, so long as it's neither Eric nor his brother Christopher. The king may have chosen to overlook offensive statements like that, but when the archbishop also openly entertained the outlaws at his own table and even gave them land to build fortifications to use in their fight against the crown, he had gone too far. The king had Archbishop Jens arrested in 1294, and he was sent to the king's younger brother Christopher, who tucked him away in the charming-sounding Dark Tower at Söborg Castle. The king, or at least his mom, who was running the place in his name, hoped that a few months in the Dark Tower would have been enough to soften up the archbishop, so Jens was offered his freedom again. All he had to do was to swear allegiance to the king. But Archbishop Jens was clearly made of sturdier stuff than the king had expected, because he re replied with another snappy one-liner. I would prefer that the king sliced me apart joint by joint than submit to his commands. The king didn't have himself sliced apart, but Jens was forced to stay in prison for another two years, until a kitchen servant was convinced to help him to escape. As soon as he managed to escape captivity, Archbishop Jens made a beeline for Rome, where he convinced the Pope to place all of Denmark under interdict until the king paid Archbishop Jens 49,000 marks of silver. Unfortunately for all pious Danes, the king wasn't able or willing to cough up such an enormous sum. After four years of this ban on all religious ceremonies in the kingdom, King Eric had to swallow his pride and write a rather humiliating letter to Pope Boniface VIII, begging for mercy and a reduction of the fine. The correspondence can't have been pleasant for the king, but it worked. The Pope agreed to reduce the fine to be paid to the Archbishop by no less than 80%, and the interdict was lifted. Archbishop Jens was also tactfully given another papal assignment in Riga, which kept him far away from Denmark and the fighting between his kinsmen and the king. Despite the fact that the acute crisis with the church had been solved, Denmark was still in a bad place. Chaos had reigned for half a century, and the country was muddling through the age of decay. At a critical time like that, 
you need strong, decisive leaders with a clear vision and both the means and the brains to get you out of the mess. Unfortunately for Denmark, it was stuck with King Eric VI, and he was nothing like that. For starters, the coffers were running dry, the kingdom was in desperate need of money, but instead of cutting spending, Eric continued to spend money as if he were King Croesus himself. For example, at one infamously lavish tournament held in Rostock, the king was so keen to prove to everyone around him that he was just as splendid a medieval king as anyone else on the continent. Eric, or rather Denmark, paid for the upkeep of the horses and all the livestock during the whole tournament for a whole month. And if you think a month's worth of oats sounds pricey, well, he also supplied free limitless amounts of beer and wine for the spectators and participants for a whole month. Such parties and entertainments were of course very costly, but that was nothing compared to King Eric's expansive and expensive foreign policy. The king and many others around him were keenly aware that Denmark had slipped since the golden age of the Valdemars, and to regain the position as the primary power in the Baltic Sea region, King Eric sent troops here and there trying to assert Danish dominance and display his power. Through a system of alliances with some German princes and noblemen, Eric managed to make himself the formal lord over a number of rich Hanseatic cities, and it was a, as a part of this campaign he arranged that month-long tournament in Rostock. Unfortunately, this policy put him on a collision course with other German principalities, most notably Brandenburg, his own mother's home. At the same time, as he was busy trying to expand his hold over northern Germany, King Eric also meddled in Swedish affairs, supporting one side in a Swedish civil war that we'll cover in more detail later this summer. Even though Eric had some military victories, there were no material gains to speak of in the Swedish campaign, and since it was fought using German mercenaries, it was also ruinously expensive. To cover all his various expenses, the king raised taxes. But the regular taxes weren't enough, even when he raised the rates, so he had to invent new and creative taxes that everyone had to pay, even the noblemen, who by now had gotten used to a life of cushy tax exemption. This policy didn't win the king any friends, and worse, it wasn't even enough to pay for all his lavish spending. Things went from bad to worse in 1312, when the harvest failed and Denmark was stuck with famine when the king, seemingly oblivious to the situation, continued to demand the same taxes as the year before, the peasantry on the island of Zealand had had enough. They were put in an impossible position having to choose between paying their taxes or eating. In their desperation, they rebelled. It wasn't a well-planned rebellion based on a scheme to topple the king, but rather the last resort of a hapless population driven to the brink of starvation. That meant that the king could crush the rebels with relative ease. But it certainly didn't mean that he went easy on them. On the contrary, the rebellion was put down brutally and hundreds of peasants were executed by hanging outside Copenhagen. Eric probably thought that if he just showed the peasants who was in charge and did so forcefully enough, they'd fall in line and start paying their taxes again. He doesn't seem to realize that they had nothing to pay him. And so, even though the rebellion was crushed, the underlying problem remained, and resentment against the king still simmered just below the surface, and not only in Zealand. The following year, 1313, the peasants and nobles gathered at the Viborg Thing in Jutland, and also declared rebellion against King Eric. 
Knowing what had happened to the Zealand rebels the year before, there were some who weren't too keen on joining this new uprising. But these Jutland peasants were stuck between a rock and a hard place. Those who refused to aid the rebels were hanged in their own homes from the beams in their houses. Not that the ones who did join fared any better. The king sent his German mercenaries to crush this rebellion as well, and they did so in a gruesomely thorough fashion, devastating large swaths of central Jutland. Rebel nobles who were caught alive were either executed or exiled, while their property was seized by the king. Surviving rebel peasants were punished by forcing them to perform slave labor for the king, constructing a number of new castles in Bugholm, Karlo, Borgwald and Ulstrup, all meant to help keep the Jutland population under control in the future. By now, Denmark was basically out of money. Wars, famine and other spending had emptied the royal coffers completely, and King Eric had no other choice than to start borrowing money. The same year that he put down the peasant rebellion in Jutland, Eric handed over all crown property in southern Jutland to none other than his family's nemesis, the Duke of Schleswig. But when the harvest failed again in the years 1315, 1316 and 1317, the king had to start to borrow money from foreign aristocrats. He mortgaged the whole island of Funen to two German counts called Gerhard and Johann in exchange for as little as 200 mounted knights, and he also mortgaged off Scania to some other German nobles for cash. It's true that pawning off large tracts of land did bring in much needed money and other resources to the crown, but in the long term it was a bad, potentially disastrous idea. The crown would have to pay an exorbitant sum to regain the mortgaged lands, and as long as it didn't, these lands were beyond the king's political control and off-limits to his tax collectors. That meant that the more land that was pawned off, the weaker and poorer the crown became, further increasing the need for quick cash infusions, which could only be achieved by further mortgaging of lands. Because of this pattern of ill-advised real estate mega-deals, a handful of rich German nobles would more or less control Denmark for years to come. Observing the desperate situation the Danes were in, and recognizing an opportunity when he saw one, the Lord of Mecklenburg captured Rostock, the scene of King Eric's lavish tournament, and expelled the Danish garrison there. So in the end, all that money Eric had spent to expand Danish control in northern Germany had been for nothing. Eric died soon afterwards, in 1319. He had survived all the various rebellions against his rule, which no doubt pleased him. He was equally doubtless much less pleased by the fact that he'd also survived all of his 14 children, and so he had no son and heir to leave the kingdom to. Instead, the crown passed to his younger brother, Christopher, who became King Christopher II. Christopher took over a kingdom that was basically bankrupt, and large parts of its territory was under the control of various German nobles. Not the most enviable starting position. To make things even worse, the nobles, many of whom were personal enemies of the royal family due to the feuding in the aftermath of the murder of Eric Plaupeny, forced Christopher to sign away most of his royal powers in order to allow him to ascend to the throne at all. The new Ascension Promissory stipulated that Christopher would not be able to make any decision about the kingdom without the consent of the nobility and the bishops. 
he had to confirm all the existing privileges of the nobility and the church, and new additional ones were added. If Christopher wanted to be king, he had to accept that the crown didn't have any jurisdiction over the church or members of the cloth whatsoever. No bishop could be imprisoned, exiled, or fined without the Pope's approval. The fate of the last two archbishops was no doubt fresh in the minds of all members of the ecclesiastical hierarchy. No secular court could try any churchman, and all church lands and property would be 100% exempt from taxes. The nobility added that the noblemen should be allowed to demand any fees or rents they liked from peasants living on their land, the king had no right to demand the noblemen fight abroad or finance wars abroad. Furthermore, the king had to agree to pay the ransom for any captured nobleman within a year, and all taxes imposed on the nobility and the church since the reign of Valdemar the Victorious should be abolished. But the king was still required to pay all his and the kingdom's debts, of course. The document represented a massive shift of power away from the king that was the exact opposite of the trend in Norway, where the kings at the same time were strengthening their position at the expense of the nobility. It should come as a surprise to exactly no one that Christopher first balked at this ascension promissory. But he had no choice. If he wanted to be king, he had to agree to it all. So he did. After he did sign, he was duly elected king in January 1320. Despite signing this humiliating ascension promissory, King Christopher did what he could to prove that he was still a real king, and apparently, in his worldview, being a real king meant continuing his brother's policy of foreign wars in northern Germany to ensure Danish control over the southern shore of the Baltic Sea. But since the terms he had agreed to forbade him from demanding that the nobility contribute men or money to a war abroad, he had to raise taxes to finance the campaign. But since he no longer could levy taxes on land owned or controlled by the nobility or the church, that meant that the poor, literally and figuratively, peasants living on crown lands had to bear the full burden of the cost of this war. It was a failure, both because he wasn't able to raise the required funds, so he had to mortgage away even more crown lands, and it made the king and his policies extremely unpopular. At this point, Christopher perhaps felt the ground shaking under his feet, because to ensure the succession, he had his son Eric, of course Eric, crowned as his co-king in 1324, and the following year he put his junior colleague in charge of an army that was tasked with putting down an aristocratic rebellion led by the Holsteins. Unfortunately, Eric failed miserably, but to be fair, it wasn't entirely his fault. When faced with the forces of the German nobles, Eric's Danish troops deserted him, leading to his capture and imprisonment. At this point, King Christopher was forced to abdicate and go into exile. In his place, the 11-year-old Duke of Schleswig was made king under the name Valdemar III, but the real ruler was the regent, the German Count Gerhard of Holstein-Rendsburg, who controlled the island of Funen. Valdemar III's ascension promissory was even more far-reaching than Christopher's had been, and he had to agree to hand over even more lands to various noblemen to demolish all royal fortifications in Scania, but at the same time allow noblemen to build private fortified castles without needing the king's consent. Valdemar 
was even forced to agree to a clause stating that no future king of Denmark could also be Duke of Schleswig, which meant that he had to give up the duchy he had been born to. That title was scooped up by the powerful Gerhard, who was conveniently upgraded from count to duke. Various German and Danish noblemen now controlled virtually all of Denmark. The peasants weren't particularly happy about the situation, not least since these various noblemen came up with new taxes and fees that they demanded that the peasants who lived and worked on their land pay. A peasant revolt erupted on the island of Zealand in 1328, but it was put down relatively easily. But another peasant revolt in 1329, this time in Jutland, proved more difficult to crush. So difficult, in fact, that Gerhard probably started to have second thoughts about running Denmark through the puppet king Valdemar III. When he'd been an influential German count living well off Danish lands, it had looked like a natural step up to make himself the de facto ruler of the kingdom. But now he'd realized that it was hard work traveling throughout the country putting down peasant revolts. It didn't really help that he was also tasked with balancing the demands of all the greedy aristocrats who were fighting for the juiciest bits of what was left of Denmark. It had been much more enjoyable to be one of those greedy aristocrats. As all of this was going on in Gerhard's head, and on the heels of the 1329 Jutland Peasant Revolt, the deposed ex-King Christopher decided that he should make a move to try and regain his crown. With the backing of Mecklenburg, he could return at the head of 2,000 German mounted knights. This was an impressive force, at least to look at. On the battlefield, on the other hand, they failed. They were surrounded and forced to surrender in their first battle. Still, the situation remained chaotic in Denmark with peasant revolts in Jutland and Zealand. At that point, the German nobleman who controlled Scania decided that it was time to cut his losses before he'd lose the region in a rebellion. So he sold Scania to the king of Sweden, both making a respectable profit and getting rid of a problematic piece of real estate that could have blown up in his face at any moment. Faced with all this mess, Gerhard decided that he'd had enough. He didn't want any more of this Regency business and he and another German count called Johann, who also controlled a large chunk of Denmark, decided to invite Christopher to return to Denmark. That's why Christopher regained his throne, despite the initial fiasco with the useless 2000 mounted knights. Valdemar III was once again demoted to Duke of Schleswig when Christopher II was reinstated as King of Denmark, as if nothing had happened. Once he was demoted back to Duke of Schleswig, Valdemar sometimes fought the crown and sometimes cooperated with it, but he would never again play any role of national importance, except for when he agreed to let his only sister, Helvig of Schleswig, marry the son of Christopher II, the future Valdemar IV, whom we'll talk about a lot more next time. When Valdemar was demoted to Duke, Christopher was king again, but in name only. In reality, Christopher was now nothing but the puppet of the clique of foreign noblemen who had allowed him to return. He had no power, and he also had to accept that Zealand and all of Jutland were mortgaged. Christopher received 100,000 silver marks for Jutland. 100 silver marks was a small fortune, so that was good, but also not, because the agreement stipulated that if the crown ever wanted Jutland back, it would have to repay the whole sum in one go, no installments allowed. It was clear to everyone that there was no way the crown would be able to cough up that kind of money in the foreseeable future. 
but there were some perks to being king. Most notably, he could secure the release of his eldest son and co-king, Eric, from prison. But humiliatingly, Eric was only released after he'd promised to marry Elizabeth of Holstein-Rendsburg, Gerhard's sister. The former regent hoped that his relatives would eventually end up on the Danish throne that way. But the marriage was dissolved the following year as a part of King Christopher's one last attempt at asserting his position as king. In order to find a way out of his degrading situation, Christopher joined one of the German counts who in reality ruled his kingdom in a rebellion against another. But it failed, and even worse, Christopher's son and co-king Eric was gravely wounded in a battle on November 30th, 1331, and he died a few days later. The combination of the military failure and the death of his eldest son and heir was a severe blow to King Christopher. He was allowed to stay on as king, but he had to reside on the island of Lolland, more or less under house arrest. He died there already in 1332, only three years after his comeback as king. With the death of King Christopher II, the Kingdom of Denmark seemed to be dying as well. There was almost nothing left of it. Scania was now ruled by Sweden, and Zealand, Funen and Jutland were mortgaged off to German noblemen. Large parts of what remained were in the hands of Danish noblemen or the church, so it was off-limits to the king anyway. Formerly, the crown reverted to Valdemar III again, but he was still underage, so Gerhard again became the regent of what was left of the once mighty kingdom. Things looked dark for Denmark. But there would be a new dawn. Next time, we'll talk more about it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are into Scandinavian history? Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you can rate podcasts nowadays. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to motivate me to go on producing the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian history-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Havamal, accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom, such as Wake up early if you want another man's land or life. Only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies, or speak useful words or be silent. Link to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop, or if you just crave more content, at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you. <laughs>